Let's talk about the future of news. I want you all to know that we are fighting the fake news. The state of journalism today. Telling both sides of a, of a controversial story. I think we must be unbiased. It's uh, honesty, fairness, uh, truth. That is our job. That is our job. That is our job. Welcome once again to the Arrow Man in Stockholm podcast. My name is Philip O'Connor. And as I mentioned lately to listeners, what we're going to do is we're going to expand this podcast just a little bit to talk about things not just to do with journalism and communications, but also about Sweden itself. A uh, little housekeeping first. You may well hear a man with a saw up on the road outside. There's very little we can do about it. And the other thing is that uh, most of my stuff is with the BBC on the far side of town now. They're over there recording the cold Swedish winter. So uh, if the microphone quality is different, we'll just have to live with that. The reason I want to bring you this conversation is because it's a fascinating subject and the person I have sitting in front of me is um, one of those people I've wanted to talk to for a long time about this particular subject and her organisation is doing fascinating work in it. Today I have with me Osa Plesner of uh, Tankesmedian Balance, which is the balance think tank, I think is the best way that we can translate it. And we're going to talk about the Swedish school system. This is something that comes up in my social media the whole time. And it's also something that comes up when parents move to Sweden, or indeed when teachers move to Sweden, because this is the, these are the kind of schools that people end up working in. So what I'm going to do is give you a very, very short introduction. Basically, Sweden is one of the only countries in the world where you can run a school and make a profit for shareholders or for owners, right? It did happen in Pinochet's Chile, but even they have turned it around. So this is kind of unique, but it's growing and it's getting bigger and bigger. And we're starting to see similar operations opening up in places like Germany and in Norway, in particular with, pre with preschool education. But there's a whole business plan behind this and it's worth hundreds of millions of euros every year. And that's why I've asked Osa to come uh, to my little studio today to talk about this. Firstly, Osa, you are very, very welcome. Thanks for taking the time to come here. Well, thanks for having me. Could you just explain to me a little bit about the Balance Think Tank? I got uh, to know the organisation or the work that you guys do through Marcus Lawson, who's a teacher in Gothenburg, and he started to write about this uh, particular subject. Could you just explain to me where the idea came from and your place, if you like, in the, the Swedish school system? Yeah, sure. Um, so the we started a think tank. Um, Marcus and I in 2017 and it was actually it started out as a joke um, we were spending we're both we were both working in the school system uh, I'm I've been an administrator and an education project manager in the kind of corporate schools that we'll be talking about today and um, Marcus was um, active in the union and a teacher um, at a small free school um, and we were spending an inordinate amount of time in our um, on evenings and weekends um, trying to comprehend what was going on in the system and why we were uh, so upset and why so little was being done. And um, at one point we just said let's pool our resources and start a blog and pretend we're a think tank. Uh, and sometimes um, be careful what you wish for, right? Because at this point, we are actually um, a grassroots financed think tank. Um, and what we try to do is, in, in as accessible language as possible, uh, explain the political economics of uh, the Swedish welfare state and how it has been changing over the last 40 or so years. Um, so we write books, we write reports, but we also spend a lot of time doing blog posts and social media rants um, and just trying to stir the pot as much as we can 
because it's not rocket science. It's it's what's been going on, and what we'll be talking about today is basically pretty fundamental economic incentives that are not in the interest of uh, the public at large anymore. Okay, so let me start, I suppose, by asking you about when you personally went to school. What age do children go to school here in Sweden? And what did the, the curriculum, what did the structure look like? Who owned it? Who was responsible for it? Um, I started school when I was seven. Uh, today, kids will start at six. Um, and I started in a small public school, elementary school, in the same building as the preschool that I'd been, I had been going at. Um, it was, I was, I started that school because it was the closest to where I lived. Um, Sweden had a school system that was very much, um, how you think that schools are run. School districts, uh, funded by taxes and, um, taught by public employees. And which, like, Sweden is built up in a sort of a weird way, right? So lo not, not a weird way, you know, weird maybe for an Irish person, but you have local government and you have central government, yeah. right? And can you just describe, you know, who owns the question? Is it the local council that decides how schools are run or how does the decision sort of filter down to them? Well, um, that has been the, the subject of substantive reform around the time that I started school, so in the late 80s and early 90s, um, what happened was that parts of the school system was decentralized to the local government, uh, and other parts were kept at the central level. Um, and at the same time, um, or virtually the same time, we opened up for privately run corporations to run schools. Um, and what, what happened was that, so it's set up like, if, if you and I decide to start a school, what we need to do is write up an application and send it to a central agency, Skolverket, no, Skolinspektionen, sorry. Um, and they will grant us the permit to run a school and then we can start it and the local government, who runs all the public schools in the area, they don't really get a say in okay. that. So what happens is that uh, entrepreneurs can choose to open schools and they will get their funding from the local government, but the local government cannot say yes or no to whether those schools should be in place. So what we have is a system where the local government has the responsibility for all children's education, but they have no, virtually no ways of planning how to get that education organized. And they have no influence over that decision. So like one of the questions I was going to ask you this uh, was, what if you and me are going to start a school, what qualifications do we need to have? Do we need a degree or do we need a business plan? Um, I, I hate guessing, and I didn't I didn't de double check that. Yeah, that, that, that's so, fine. So I'm not going to say. Yeah. But I, what I will tell you is that when I was um, 23 or 24, I worked for a corporation, and I wrote this kinds of this kind of application. Hmm. Um, and we didn't have we didn't know who who was going to staff the school. We didn't know where we were going to like uh, where we were going to have it. Um, we we. We created a paper product, mm. and we got the permit, and that corporation is now running, I think, 10 or 15 elementary schools based on that application that I started as a 20-something yeah. with no experience in actually running schools. So um, 
I think we could make it work. <laughs> if we were to try try a look at the application, uh, there's a very high chance that we would get the permit. We're actually going to And uh, let's we would not be suitable for organizing. I would definitely not be suitable. I'm thinking you might be slightly more qualified to be, but I would definitely not be suitable. Um, what is it that makes this system unique? Because as I said in the beginning, as I said in the beginning, there, this is one of those things that you just don't find really in any other country. Certainly not. You might find it at a preschool level, mm -hmm. but you're not going to find it in elementary or middle or upper secondary right. schools, right? So, how did Sweden get here? Um, we got here by. Um, I would say that there are three very different logics that were running at the same time and in a way that weren't wasn't transparent for the public. Uh, so let's go back to, to the 80s when these things were debated. Um, in the public discourse, the message was that uh, by allowing privately run schools, we will have more freedom and more diversity. Um, this was at a time where the the Swedish traditional socially social democratic uh, welfare state was getting a bad rep. Um, and uh, the non-socialist uh, parties were successfully arguing that um, Sweden is too bureaucratic and we don't get a say in our own lives. And we there's, need there's no choice. There's no choice. And we need choice. So let's let in choice into our schools. And, and the message then was that what will happen is that creative people will be able to create humanitarian, progressive, beautiful little school havens where those of us who don't fit into the big, no choice, terrible, oppressive system um, can thrive. Uh, and so the examples being used for those of uh, like parents taking over schools uh, that weren't that had a, a too too few students, yeah. uh, and like let's let's keep those schools alive, and let's let's let in uh, the people who truly love children and don't work for the government. <laughs> to, to, so so that was and and to some extent those schools exist too, uh, they do, yeah. um, but they're not very many. Um, but that was so so that was the selling point. Um, what we've also uncovered is a lot of underlying logic of if we do this, education will be cheaper and hopefully more efficient, but definitely cheaper. Um, the the underlying logic for, for decentralizing schools was that schools were getting expensive and the central government didn't want to deal with that. Mm. Um, so there was an expectation from uh, those in charge that this will save us money. There was an expectation from the public that this will increase freedom and diversity. What nobody seems to have actually talked about at any level, because this was not um, this was not properly planned. This was uh, pushed through very quickly. Um, were the unintended consequences of what happens when you let in corporate interests into tax-funded operations. Um, and entrepreneurs are innovative and efficient, yes, including they're very innovative in how to design 
their business plans and their school profiles to get the most tax money for the least amount of costs and work. Mm. Uh, and that's, that's how entrepreneurs should be doing their work. Um, but the difference between the actual private market and tax-funded operations is that when the government pays, um, there's no incentive to to stay lean. It's it's sort of a... Mm. Um, there's no profit motive. There's no margin to be maintained. It's just, okay, we, we pay this. This is what we get. Whereas with a business, you're looking at, okay, we're going to keep costs as low as possible. We're going to keep our income as high as possible. And whatever's left over then goes to our shareholders. Right. So it's a different way of thinking. Yeah. Does that mean then that basically what you're looking at is where schools used to be run for children that are now being run for shareholders? Is that the crux of the situation? I'm going back now. Okay, for people listening to this podcast who may not live in Sweden, may not be familiar with Sweden, they have this idea that it's all about, you know, uh, ABBA and all of Palme's people's home and everything is great and everything works perfect and they think things through and now you know even with corona everybody's going well you know the Swedes look mad in the beginning but it turns out that they were right and of course they always do things that even if I can't put my Ikea furniture together myself I can appreciate this great plan but is that essentially what it comes down to that when you change it from being the state as the owner of education and you make corporations responsible for it that it stops being the children that are important and it becomes profit? I guess, yeah. And I would also, um, I think that's, I mean, Sweden's brand is that of social democratic utopia mm. and good planning. Um, I think that's also part of our self-image. Um, but actually, that has not been our entire history. I mean, we were not a, even a democracy until the 1920s. Um, the social democrats had a good run of some 50, 60 years of dominance, yes. but that virtually ended uh, 30 to 40 years ago. Mm. Uh, so I don't actually think that Sweden is a society that's so marinated in equality that nothing um, can take us out of it. We There's there's a new book uh, that came out very recently by economic historian Erik Bengtsson that really challenges this myth of um, Sweden as an egalitarian culture. Yeah. Uh, we had a, we had a, a couple decades of a very progressive uh, workers movement, mm. uh, but we're not seeing that anymore. So we're we're really on a different different trajectory from the what I think is the idea of Sweden. Mm. So you went to school. You went to the school that was closest to your house. You went to elementary school there. You got your lunch every day. You had the school nurse. You had you know the after school. You would go to after school care and you play with yep. your friends. That yep. you went home. Um, what has changed since private corporations have been allowed to come into the marketplace there? So have you any examples to say, you know, okay, I know Marcus writes a lot about certain geographic areas and what happens when these schools establish themselves, mm -hmm. but say in your hometown or in any town that you would be familiar with, what has changed in the landscape of education there? Uh, well, one thing that's changed, um, I live in, a, in one of the suburbs in, in Stockholm, um, and we have, I think, maybe three, four different elementary schools. And it's, my, my youngest child is nine, and there's, there's, no, there's no telling where her friends or our neighbors will go to school. Uh, there's no, the, the entire idea of 
you go wherever is closest to your home, and so you can organize play dates in the, in the immediate area. Uh, that doesn't work like that anymore. It's a constant source of uh, a topic of conversation between parents, like what school do your kids go to and why do you pick that? And do you think, uh, are you going to stay there? Are you looking to switch? Um, for how long do you think you're going to stay in your school? Actually, one of the major headaches of head teachers and school administrators that I don't really see in the public debate as much is um, the fact that kids can switch schools whenever hmm. uh, during the academic year. Um, so when you, when you try to run a school, you don't actually know how many students uh, you are responsible for, for, even for the term the semester or the, the academic year. Um, you have, and if, if, and if you live in an urban area um, where there's an, there are more schools than, than really needed, um, then pupils will switch around. Um, ambitious parents will move their kids to whatever school they perceive to be the best, of course, because parents want to do what's best for their children. And that also means that um, I remember at, at, at times we would lose like w one student from the second year, two students from the third year, three students in f from the fourth year, um, from one week to another. And that means if we lose, uh, what did that sum add up to? Uh, five kids? Yeah. If we lose five kids, that means that uh, we lose uh, half a million kronor for the year. So half a million Swedish crowns just yeah, disappears that, out of the budget. And that means that is almost one full, full-time staff. Hmm. So who am I going to let go to compensate for the fact that the second year now has a one less kid, the third year has one less kid, and the fourth year has three less kids? Um, what I need to do if I want to if I want to turn a profit from the school, what I really need to do is figure out a way to need to have students in my classes that don't need uh, a whole lot of continuity, okay. that can cope with teacher changes, with uh, staff shortages, um, and that means I need to attract non-demanding students. Okay, so what you what you want is kids who are. Uh, self-motivated, they are capable of doing these things by, by themselves. If we want to be crass about it, we don't want any diagnoses of ADHD or autism or any of that kind of right. thing, any kind of behavioral issues. What we want is like the, what we call in Sweden the middle lane of kids mm -hmm. who are just going to go at their own pace and do their own thing. And it doesn't matter who's standing at the whiteboard. Yeah. And isn't that ironic that a reform that was about diversity is creating a system where any student who is different from the mold is um, disadvantaged yeah. and not welcome in these in schools. What is it that it makes? Because corporations are only going to come in where there's money to be made, right? If there was like, you know, 5,000 crowns here and there, nobody's going to care. What is it that makes the Swedish system so profitable to the extent that some of these companies are listed on stock exchanges in, in Sweden yeah. and they're earning millions that go to tax havens? There is a technical term for this, which is very illustrative. It's cream skimming. Mm -hmm. uh, and it is the idea, and we've been touching on this, that um, it's possible for schools to design their profiles so as to attract the least resource-demanding students. But the financing system, the school vouchers, um, don't compensate for that. So 
if we can start, if you and I start the school and we're really strategic about it, we're going to make sure that uh, we attract low and uh, students with low demands. Um, but we're going to get income corresponding to pretty much the average student okay. in, the, in the city that we're operating in. Uh, so if we can just keep the expensive students out without overt discrimination, then we, we really have a very, very profitable and stable business model. Mm. So these are also people who, because they're sort of self-motivated and they, you know, they can look after themselves, that they can sort of go through this. They're not likely to change to another school in the middle of the academic year because they're doing okay anyway, right? We don't have to pay uh, special needs assistance. We don't have to pay for one-to-one -one tuition because these kids are fine. They don't right. have any diagnosis. Right. They don't have dyslexia. They don't yeah. have dyscalculia. This kind of thing. So what also happens then is it's it's more important for us to cultivate. Um, a, the, our school brand and a shared culture in which the parents to our students won't start demanding more of us. Mm. Um, and I think you can see some schools now actively targeting um, students who want to do a lot of studying on their own. Uh, one of, one of the, the corporations that is operating on that premise, Kunskapsskolan, is started uh, it was founded by uh, a person who was highly influential in the design of the school voucher system. So we really have we, we have entrepreneurs who know exactly how the system works and who are uh, running very profitable school corporations and who will publicly say uh, if they were to listen or respond to this podcast that I'm a conspiracy theorist. Uh, but all I'm saying is that you know exactly how you're supposed, how you could game the system, and uh, your uh, balance sheet is saying that you are very successfully gaming the system. Mm -hmm. But sure, maybe you're just operating out of the goodness of your hearts. Um, but, but why is it then that municipal schools can't compete? Why can't they just pick and choose? and say, okay, you know, again, without overt discrimination, we go, okay, screw the kids with ADHD, screw yeah. the kids with damp or, or autism or dyslexia, let them go somewhere else. Why can't they do that? Yeah, well, uh, local governments are still stuck with the responsibility for educating all children. Um, so they need to guarantee a place in a school, some school, for every child that lives in their city. Uh, so that means they, they get to pick up Everyone who doesn't choose a private school needs to have a guaranteed place in a municipal school. And so, so if you think about it, if we have this this uh, constant flux of students um, trying to find the right school, um, that means, from a municipal standpoint, you will have an ever-changing student body that you are, by law, required to uh, attend to, um, and that means you have to carry all the opportunity cost in the system. You have to carry all the risk. You have to fund enough school buildings and enough teachers to make do. And you will also um, be stuck with a negative impact on, on your so-called brand, mm -hmm. uh, because it's really hard to run schools when you, when you don't get to gain the system. 
So if I have what in Swedish is called a free school lab, which is basically free school, mm-hmm. and then the other schools are, are basically public schools mm-hmm. coming all our school. So if I have a free school lab and there's a kid who's been a pain in the ass and he's setting fire to trash cans and that kind of thing, can I expel that kid? And does that kid have to be picked up then by a local public school? They have to offer that kid a, an education? No, you, you can't you can't expel students. Okay. Um, what you can do is dissuade their parents from staying at your school. Okay. So you put a little bit of pressure on this parent and say, look, I don't think this is the right place for them. I don't yeah. think they're going to get great well, grades. Or I, I, have, I have a kid with uh, several disabilities, and I've had so many uh, schools tell me that, hmm, you know what? We have a really hard time hmm. uh, making the proper, the kind of adjustments that your kid would need. Yeah. Uh, and that's a very, very telling message to give to a parent. You don't, you don't need to actually expel kids. They're, they're just telling you they don't want you. They they will tell you that unfortunately, maybe we're not able yeah. to give your kid. Yeah, like by all means leave yeah. them here. Yeah. You know, but we're not going to be able to right. exactly. offer the help today. Okay. Um, this obligation that local schools have does that mean then? And this is absolutely you know nothing against the students and the teachers who work mm-hmm. there. But does that mean then that when you're you have the children of ambitious parents, of well-educated parents, uh, they are capable of making a choice. Because let's face it, not every parent is capable of making an informed choice. I would include myself among them. Mm-hmm. I've lived here for 21 years. Mm-hmm. I have virtually no idea how the system works. If you tell me the kid goes in eighth grade, ninth grade, I don't know how old they are, still after 21 years. So I'm not capable of making that decision. I haven't been through the system the same way you do. Mm-hmm. I am the greatest mark in the system, right? Because if somebody comes to me and says, hey, my classrooms are quiet, there's nobody acting the dickhead in here. They get really good grades. I don't know. Yeah, okay, that that's cool. I'll put them in there. Uh, is that exploited or is that used by uh, corporate schools? Is that something that uh, local uh, public schools can do, or how does that dynamic work? Um, let me think for a couple of seconds. Um. Because, like you said earlier on, right? Parents want the best for their children. Yeah. And it's one of those things where. They only get one shot at this. Right? I went up through the whole sort of Catholic school hierarchy mm-hmm. in Ireland. We shared a class with girls for the first three years until we were maybe seven or eight years of age. Then we weren't allowed to even look at them for the next ten years. Right. But we went through that, and that has made its mark on me in certain ways, mm-hmm. behaviourally and educationally and everything else. So when I'm making this decision, I might, I'm not the dumbest man in the world, I'm far from the smartest, but I, I would hope to be making an informed decision about these things. But what you mentioned earlier on, and you've used the word brand a couple of times, mm-hmm. and that's what I'm getting at here, because... We're looking at, once we involve private companies, you're essentially talking about a sales exercise. I've seen yes. the glossy brochures and yes. that. So how are these things packaged or marketed? Is it towards the student? Is it towards the parents? How do they go about finding their their customers in inverted commas? Right. Well, they're very creative. And, and I want to be clear that like throughout this discussion, we're, we're sort of constructing a narrative of, of very strategic and, and crass um, corporations, um, and that's, I think that's a fair criticism. Uh, it's, it would not be a fair description of teachers or parents or no, students. No. Um, what, what we have is a system of economic incentives where very good-hearted people try to do their best, um, and that affects everyone in the system. Uh, so Th- that also goes to the public school system as well, yes, because they're doing definitely. their best there. Yeah. Uh, and because um, 
public schools too want at least some students who are self-motivated yeah. and easy. <laughs> so they they too are participating in the in the marketing efforts. Um, well, one example would be um, we got a letter uh, addressed to the guardian of, and then my youngest child's name. And she was seven, and she was uh, learning to read and loved opening letters. So I said, go on. It's about you, because it's it says you want to open it. And she was quiet for a couple minutes. You know, that, that sense that worries parents, parents when their kids are suddenly go quiet. And then she screamed out, and she said, it says, Come to the school with a soccer profile. It's the best soccer profile school in Stockholm. Mom, I don't want to go to a soccer school. I want to go to my school. <laughs> I was like, God damn it, don't send me there. I said, no, it's just, it's, it's just marketing material. You don't, it's not a, it's not an, a request. Yeah. <laughs> you, you don't have to do this. You don't this. have to do this. <laughs> uh, because she doesn't like soccer. Hey, so, so I feel sorry for her, but there you go. Yeah, so, so when... As a parent of a school-age kid in Sweden, you will get uh, mail mm. uh, asking you to switch to certain schools. You will be invited to um, school fairs where schools are um, on display. Uh, you will be invited to open houses and informational meetings. Um, and you will be expected to file your school choice in January, the year that your child will start school. Um, but then after that, you will be uh, encouraged by private schools to change your choice and, mm. and move over to them. And I would have thought that, you know, for all its faults, all of Palme's people's home, you know, the social democratic tradition almost unbroken from the end of the Second mm -hmm. World War, mm -hmm. the welfare state such as it was, this image that people actually do have, yeah. there's a sentiment. Then you introduce this, because if you have that, into, that image of a social democratic Sweden, right, but this right. is the most free market yeah. liberal thing I've ever heard. Right? Yeah. This is just, it's crackers when you see the system in operation. Why, how is it even possible for people like your generation and your parents' generation who grew up mm -hmm. in Palmas people's home to allow this to happen? Because I have yet to see anything really positive come out of this. Right. Um, well, one way of putting it was that we didn't allow it to happen. We thought that there would be more diversity and more freedom. That, yeah. that that's what the, the the Swedish public said, okay to, or at least hasn't voted to to um, disband. Um, we we really haven't had a factual debate about the school system in a very long time, and we haven't had a social democratic party that has um, been able to defend its old ideals. Uh, for example, when, when the free school reform uh, was decided back in 92 uh, by a non-socialist government, um, private schools would, wouldn't get the, the, the same amount this, on their school vouchers as the public schools uh, because uh, for all its faults, the original reform foresaw that private schools would cater to cheaper students. Mm -hmm. So they were given, I think, 85% of the amount the public schools got for each student. Um, it 
was a social democratic government that changed that, and so now private schools get 100%. Um, there has been, there, recently there's been a uh, governmental investigation suggesting that, how about we lower that to 92%, and and now that that's been that's been uh, received as uh, with a, an outcry from the non-socialist parties and mm -hmm. as an attack on on um, freedom of choice. Yeah. yeah. So what we're talking about in Sweden at the moment is pretty much a minority government. The biggest party in it is the Social Democrats with the Prime Minister Stefan Löfven. But they are supported by two non-socialist parties, centre-right parties, if you will, yeah. and they are dependent on them to remain in power. So and these two parties uh, would be. The kind of free market parties who would they would support this kind of policy where you have you know okay privatize these things let these things be open to the market. Is it the case uh, because this is what I didn't realize that there's basically an agreement in that coalition agreement or that confidence and supply agreement that keeps Stefan Levin as prime minister that he's not allowed or that the party are not allowed to criticize these things publicly. Exactly, um, they're not. So the, the Swedish cabinet right now is kept in place by a set of interlocking agreements, actually. Uh, there's the, the January agreement uh, that you're referring to, which is a, a bullet list of, I think, 73 items um, that the Centre Party and the Liberal Party have uh, agreed to. As long as the government respects that agreement, they w won't vote them out of uh, government. And one of those points is that um, the government cannot drive policy that threatens the free school reform. Um, I guess, I mean, if you're legalistic, you could say that they could still argue for it, but, but these things aren't legalistic. This, this is a... Uh, a matter of, of confidence and shared culture and shared ag agreement uh, mm. outside of what's actually written. So what we have in effect is we have a, an education minister who before the election wrote um, op-ed pieces about how the school market needed reform, but she cannot push those policies now that she's in cabinet. Mm. And that's, when you think about it, that is really, really strange too, that um, a political party can sort of win the election and then agree not to push their policies. It seems to me that since that election, basically, the Social Democrats, you know, they were the winners, but they were also the biggest losers because now they find themselves in power not doing the things that they told people that they would do. Right. So they're governing with both hands tied behind their back. They can't do the things that the people who voted for the Social Democrats voted for them to do specific things, such as this free school reform. Uh, such as things to do with healthcare, such as mm -hmm. many of these reforms that have taken place that people certainly people want to roll back, and certainly people who vote for the Social Democrats want to roll back. But they can't do any of that with the realization that everybody's going, well, why vote for these guys? Right. They, they get a government and they can't do these things. But if we look just, you know, one of the things that struck me, because we're into this sort of corporate reporting season, or we were a few weeks ago, where we were getting the full year results from 2019. And what I'd like to know from you, Osa, is what this means internationally. Because this has been an experiment, if you like, in Sweden. Mm -hmm. The free school reform from 1992 until the present day. It's almost 30 years of this. And there have been changes. And there have been tweaks, like you say, the, um, the amount of money, the school voucher, the money that follows each pupil's head around the place has gone up and has gone down and has changed. Uh, we had a recent situation where, as far as I remember, uh, things like grades and results are now classified as business 
secrets yeah. in this country, right? Which is nuts. Like it's a fashionable hater, which is basically commercial secrets and how they're treated, just so that we can't compare like with like. What do you expect to happen here? When you look at the companies that are involved in providing free school education here, do you see them establishing themselves or trying to establish themselves in Great Britain, Norway, Japan, wherever it happens to be? Yeah, well, obviously, if you if you run uh, a corporation with uh, like the fundamental uh, fundamental business logic, then you want to grow. Mm. Um, not everyone who starts schools uh, in Sweden want to do that, uh, and and again, there are uh, private but idea based schools um, yeah. that don't threaten the system at all. Uh, that I would say are entirely unproblematic in themselves. But um, we have um, schools establishing themselves in Spain. We have uh, school founders um, working in Saudi Arabia to start schools there. Um, I mean, the current administration in the United States are interested in, in the school voucher system. There is interest around the world from corporate um, from corporations in how could we gain from a system such as Sweden. So I think it's uh, it's vital that we get the word out about what has been going so terribly wrong in Sweden. Um, so at least that if, if other countries are going to go down this path, they know a little bit about what to look out for. So if you were to sum up some of the things, some of the negative things that have happened, mm -hmm. what would you say are the biggest problems? Because there are many people who listen to this who say, hey, what's wrong with making money out of education? What's wrong with providing a service cheaper and better than the state? What do you see as the downside of this? Well, the major downside, I would say, is that there is no real way we can ever know if a private player is actually supplying better and cheaper services, or if they're just um, making us believe that they are. Because education is fundamentally about a couple kids in a room with a trusted uh, teacher who, uh, who can teach them things. Uh, it doesn't, you can't easily measure it. Um, if you have a standardized tests, you will see schools teaching to the tests. If you have grades, you will see grade inflation. Um, there are some services, such as education, such as healthcare, uh, such as um, care for the elderly and the disabled, that are fundamentally about people helping people. And that doesn't work well with the corporate logic. Uh, corporations are lovely at technical innovation. Uh, let them do that, and let's have a public sector where we follow a public logic, which is that of train professionals well, uh, trust them, by all means have systems that check on them, um, but allow the services to unfold according to their own logic. Uh, how much oversight is there of this? Because we mentioned grades there as being one of the things that's compared now, obviously, because they're commercial secrets, so we can't compare them anymore. Mm -hmm. But has there been evidence of, of grade inflation in certain free schools or certain private schools compared to public schools? Is that something that happens as you know bait to get parents to put their kids in there? Oh, yeah, definitely. And there's been um, research into it. Uh, I can't quote it from the top of my head, but 
uh, my understanding is that uh, there's a tendency for all schools in an area to inflate their grades when competition between schools and increase. Um, so basically just confirmation that um, when you create a market, uh, schools will respond to market logics. And, and grading becomes, instead of a way of communicating to um, kids and families and uh, education higher up, uh, how things are working out for the student, it instead becomes uh, a selling point. Yeah. So when all our kids get great grades, send right. your kids here, kind of thing. And should probably remind listeners that Sweden doesn't have standardized testing. It's usually a continuous assessment over the course of an educational year, and that's what they get their grade based on. But they're informed several times throughout the year about where they are in relation to, they have things called Kunskapskrav, and that's basically the criteria that you have to meet to get a particular grade. And they're quite clear, right? But what we get is we get teachers who just go, ah, you know what, I can bump this kid up from a B to an A or whatever, just to make it seem like, you know, if they go and talk to, if the parents go and talk to their friends, or other kids will go to those schools. And that's the inflation we're talking about there. All of us know, oh, you know, my kid went there, their grades got better. Right. And I think one important point to make is that um, no one believes that they themselves are inflating grades. Yeah. That this is these are processes that aren't really transparent to teachers or parents directly. Yeah. But if you look at it uh, in the aggregate, you see that grades do inflate over time. Uh, they do inflate more in competitive school districts than non-competitive school districts, and they do inflate more in private schools than in public schools. So it's not actually like a conscious decision on the part no, of a no, teacher no, no, no. in a free school. It's you become part of this um, this ecosystem yeah. whereby this just happens by yeah. itself. And um, one thing we didn't mention was that this is not a country. This country is very much known for its secular schooling. There are religious schools set up within this. Um, within this system as well, is there are they a problem? Is it a problem the kids go? I've seen, it, for instance, now where you know boys and girls will be separated in certain um, Muslim schools yeah. for lessons like PE, you know, so mm-hmm. that they won't see each other in certain clothing or that. Is that something that people find problematic, or is that you know the, at the the lesser end of the scale? Um, well, both. It is something that people find problematic and that gets a lot of media attention when it happens. Um, my impression is that it it really isn't that common um and that it it gets um that there are maybe um xenophobic uh drivers of that media attention yeah Uh, because obviously in any school system uh regardless of how you set it up uh, bad things will happen Mm. and um improper activities will take place so that's that's not in itself uh, an artifact of the school system, I think. But it is perhaps an artifact of the fact that, like we were talking about earlier, um, you don't really need a lot of skills to start a school. You need um, you need to fill out an application. That, that's what you need to do. And a lot of people will do that. Not all of them will be uh, savvy businessmen. Some of them will be driven by religion. And um, finally. Is it too late to close the stable door here? Is the horse already bolted? Is there any way that this system, because as I say, it is causing problems 
uh, in terms of integration. It is causing problems when you take the kids of more ambitious parents out. It tends to lead to more segregation rather than mm. more diversity, as you were saying earlier on. Is there, do you have any hope that this can be rolled back? Can the system be policed better, or does it just need to be sort of broken down and built up again? Yeah, um, I'm guessing this is sort of the closing question, right? Yeah, we where can we, keep going. We, yeah. <laughs> but I, I, uh, sometimes when I give talks, um, this sort of question comes up at the end, like, where is the hope? Where is the yeah. silver lining? How, where to go from here? And I'm like the worst person to ask that kind of question because I'm, I'm not driven by hope uh, myself. Mm. Uh, I hope I'm wrong because I don't see a way um, to get the horse back in the stable. Mm. But but don't listen to me. I don't know more about the future than anybody else does. And there is, I mean, things happen that I think other people would say give cause for hope. So I can give you that case, even though I don't really yeah, believe sure. it in myself. Um, well, for example, uh, if we if we look outside of the school system, um, we have similar systems in, in uh, care and health care. Um, and one major Swedish... Uh, corporation just a couple months ago pulled out of elderly care in Norway, uh, citing as the reason, um, let me read this, um, poor conditions for developing our operations. Basically, we can't turn a profit here. Yeah. We don't see uh, a way to do that in the near future, so we're going to give up. Um, they're not illegal in Norway, but the system isn't as um, advantageous for them. So, uh, and some people believe that there are ways to tweak the Swedish system. Uh, we can tweak the school vouchers. We can tweak the uh, financing formulas, and make it less uh, attractive for uh, big corporations. Um, so that's that's one way of doing it. Um, there also there have been changes, um, just si little signs of something something shifting in um, in lib in the liberal debate, uh, liberal um, newspapers have been starting to write more critically about private schools, um, basically arguing that this system needs to be more palatable to the public if we are to keep it. So we need to clean this up a bit. Um, yeah, so there's, there's that. I don't think there's been a couple of attempts at like more sweeping reform and that hasn't been politically viable. Um, but but idealistic technocrats still believe that there are knobs to turn here. Yeah. Uh, and I hope I hope they're right. What do Swedish taxpayers think when they see tens of millions of euros, you know, which is essentially taxpayers' money, which is paying for the education of, of children and it's winding up in tax havens in the Cayman Islands. So what do, what does like the person who would have voted for Palme is people's home pink when they see that? Well the person who would have voted for Palme is outraged. But again, this is not a country where everybody loved Palme. Yeah. This is a country where a sizable portion of the public voted for the Social Democrats for a couple decades. But where um, non-socialist, liberal, conservative parties really hold more of the electorate than the Social Democrats do. So um, what I see, uh, like when I talk to people and in my, my social media flows is more feeds is more of um, a very uh, the interpretation of 
uh, profits is very much divided, where social democrats and leftists will say, this is appalling, it's immoral, we need to uh, end this immediately by any means possible, but where liberal and conservatives will go, like you were saying before, what's the problem with profits? Mm -hmm. They're just good at what they do. And then some of us are standing in the middle of this saying, can we please look at what they're actually good at? Um, I have uh, spent numerous dinner parties uh, enjoying conversation that started out with, you know, Osa, why don't just public schools get, uh, take more inspiration from private schools? Because the private actors are doing things so well. And I'm like, that's a really interesting take. Can you give any examples yeah. of what they're doing so efficiently? Um, and that's the starting point of many interesting conversations. Because a lot of the time, people who believe in uh, profit-running schools don't actually know uh, a whole lot about the logic that is creating that profit. Mm -hmm. One of those things that uh, I spend a lot of time in Las Vegas for various different sporting events, and I've yet to see a casino owner down on the floor in the blackjack pit because right. if, when you know that the house is, is against you, then you're not going to go against it. Well, that's a fascinating discussion, and I think we've got two years to the next election. I definitely think it's something that we're going to come back to because I think people are going to react to this, and it is certainly something that other countries are looking at. But for now, Osa Plessner, thank you very much for talking to me. Thank you for having me.